Take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. We were done with our series on the stories from the Old Testament until Brother Bob requested this particular one. And so we're going to continue one more. And as I mentioned, if there are other stories that we've forgotten, we've done 21 now from the Old Testament. If there are other favorite stories that you'd like for us to deal with, we will. But if not, we'll be done here today with this story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings is right before 2 Kings in your Bible, if you're having trouble finding it. 1 Kings chapter 18. I said that because I was having trouble finding it. We're going to jump down to verse 17. Start there in the middle of the chapter. 1 Kings 18, verse 17. Then it happened... When Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, and that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel, And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore let them give us two bulls, and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one bull for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many. And call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they took the bull which was given them, and they prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning even till noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. No one answered. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is meditating, or he is busy, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. And when midday was past, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood, and said, Fill four water pots with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Then he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar. And he also filled the trench with water. 
And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Father, we're so thankful for Your wonderful Word, and we're thankful for this another wonderful story from the Old Testament that reminds us of so many great truths. I pray today as we look at it and as we just think through what it has to say, I pray that you'll speak to our hearts and help us in every way to understand it and most of all to apply it. Lord, I pray that if any of this is specifically appropriate to anybody in this room, myself included, speak to us, change us, make us what we ought to be this day uh, by the application of your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, some background here. This event took place during the years of the divided kingdom, Israel in the north consisting of ten tribes and Judah in the south consisting of two tribes. There are three main characters in the story, two that we see directly here and one who kind of played an indirect role, but uh, uh, the first was Ahab. Ahab was the king of Israel, and he was one of the most wicked kings, maybe the most wicked kings of all the kings of Israel, all of whom were wicked. And to say that a person is the most wicked of a group that is all wicked is saying something pretty pretty clear. The Bible puts it pretty succinctly when it says there was none like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. And, of course, that brings us to the second character, which is Jezebel. Ahab's wife, Jezebel, was, if anything, more wicked than Ahab himself, viewed from any angle you can think of. Jezebel was a disgusting and evil pig. There's no other way to say what she was. Both of them would eventually receive the judgment they deserved. Ahab would die uh, when a, uh, he was in battle, and a randomly shot arrow would find a little tiny chink in his armor and kill him. It was a God thing. There's no question about it. You can read about that on your own. Jezebel would die when her own servants threw her out a window onto the pavement before splattered her blood all over the ground, and the dogs came and ate her. So these were not good people, and God judged them terribly. But finally, there was Elijah. Elijah's the third character, the main character, if we, if we don't count God. God's the main character in this story, but yeah, Elijah was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. And even though in the world's eyes you would take those three, Ahab a king, Jezebel a queen, Elijah just a little prophet, and you would you would kind of... Put the prophet below the king. There's no question here that Elijah stood taller than them both in this story. The scene took place during a time of famine, terrible famine. Three years of famine had occurred, and it had occurred directly in response to Elijah's prayer. He had prayed that it would not rain. James tells us, clear over in James 5.17, referring back to this, Elijah had prayed that it would not rain, and it did not rain for three years. And as with most similar events, God was judging his people through that situation. He was judging them for their idolatry and their sinful choices. They had turned from worshiping Jehovah alone to either altogether worshiping the false god Baal 
or mingling the worship of Baal with the worship of Jehovah. I say Baal, but it says here both Baal and Asherah. Baal was the male deity, and Asherah was his female consort. Baal was the Canaanite storm god, god of the rain, interestingly, god of the storms, god of lightning, god of fire. Now, as we're reading our, our, this chapter here, chapter 18, we find that the famine is about to end. Chapter 18, verse number 1, we didn't read it, but notice there, it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. The famine is about to end, and Elijah was going to call his people back to the worship of Jehovah. So with that background, let's look at what happened. What happened? The first thing that we read about, uh, is that Elijah called a meeting with Ahab. Actually, we didn't read that part either. That was a few verses up in verses 7 through 8. Uh, but uh, here's what had happened. Ahab, knowing that Elijah had prayed and caused this famine or brought this famine upon them, had been seeking his life, wanting to kill him uh, for those three years. Verse 10 tells us that. But Elijah was a brave dude. He was one of the bravest men that I think you'll find described in the Bible, and he didn't fear Ahab in the least. So when the time came and God said, this thing is up, even though this guy was trying to kill him, Elijah had no problem whatsoever sending for Ahab and requesting a meeting. Then we come to verse 17, and we see that meeting. We see Ahab met with Elijah. And the first thing that the, that the king did was to accuse Elijah of being not only his enemy personally, but the enemy of all of Israel. An accusation which Elijah threw right back at his face, pointing out that it was his idolatry, his Baal worship that was the cause. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read that, that little interaction that took place there in verses 17 through 19, I, I can't help but find it interesting. Here was a king who clearly feared and obeyed a prophet, and here was a prophet who didn't fear the king in the least, and demanded and actually commanded the king And that's just kind of the opposite of what we would expect, isn't it? That's not the way it works in our world. Kings are up here and prophets are down here. Isn't that the way it works? A couple of years ago, I attended a retirement service, retirement uh, of a dear friend, pastor. You've met, some of you have met him, but he was retiring from ministry after many, many years. And one of the speakers at the service was another one of my friends with whom I had gone to Bible college, and he was preparing to speak uh, at this retirement service. Right before my friend took the pulpit, there was some recognitions of people in the, in the congregation that were attending the service. And one of the people that was recognized was a young man who was a missionary. I think he had come out of this church, and, and he was, uh, I can't remember if he was on deputation or what he was doing, but he was a missionary. And he stood up and he gave a little report, and there was this polite applause from the people as they nodded their appreciation for this missionary and what he was doing. And then the next person that stood up was uh, a young man in military uniform who was home from overseas. And he was serving in the military. And uh, he told what was going on. And he sat down and there was a thunderous applause from the congregation. I can't remember if it was a standing ovation or not, but it was, it was big. It was, they were very, very pleased with what they had seen. So my friend stood up in the pulpit and he said, I'll have to paraphrase. I didn't write it down, but he said basically this. He says, you know, I served overseas in the military. He said, I am retired career military. He said, so I have the right to say to you what I'm going to say to you right now. And he said, you guys ought to be ashamed of yourselves. He said, you heaped praise upon the military guy and said almost nothing 
about this man who has given his life to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in missions. And he was not in any way demeaning the military man's service at all because he was one. But he was pointing out the disparity. Spurgeon said one time, if God calls you to be a minister, don't stoop to becoming a king. And there is perhaps no better example of that in the Bible than what we see right here. Here is Elijah towering over top of this cowering punk of a king, Ahab. And it's, it's something for us to remember. Elijah commanded Ahab. He commanded him to gather all the prophets of Baal. There was 450 of them. All the prophets of Asherah. There was 400 of them. And all the people of Israel to Mount Carmel. Verse number 19. Now, when you study that out, it's very interesting. Mount Carmel lies on the border between Phoenicia, which was the land of the Baals, and Israel, which was the land of Jehovah. So middle ground, right in the, right between the two. It was regarded by the Phoenicians as the sacred dwelling place of Baal. This was home territory for Baal. And it was also symbolic in Israel of fertility and plenty. Isaiah wrote about it. He said, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given into it. The excellence of Carmel and Sharon. Isaiah 35. Jeremiah wrote, I will bring back Israel to his home, and he shall feed on Carmel and Bashan. His soul shall be satisfied on Mount Ephraim and Gilead. It's a beautiful place. I have stood four times on the top of Mount Carmel. And I have to tell you, it is a beautiful place. The picture that is on the front of your uh, bulletins today is a picture that I took atop Mount Carmel. That is a statue of Elijah fighting the or, or, or dealing with this uh, this issue of the prophets of Baal. And you can see that it is it is green, it is flowers, and it's just a it's just a very beautiful place. Well, Ahab complied with Elijah's demand. They all assembled on Carmel, except for the 400 prophets of Asherah. We don't see any evidence here that they were included in this. At least they're not mentioned. Perhaps Jezebel, who controlled them, refused to let them go. But the 450 prophets of Baal and the people of Israel came, and they assembled. And the first thing Elijah did when he got to the top of this mountain with all these people around him in verse number 21 was to rebuke rebuke them for their backsliding and their condition. He said in verse 21, How long will you falter between two opinions? Elijah called the people to a choice. He called them to a decision. He said, There is only one God, and you cannot divide your allegiance. As the people of Israel were doing, God demands singular, total allegiance. I'm going to come back to that verse in just a few minutes, but it's one we ought to have marked in our Bibles. Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him, Not a word. I can picture that being just like when my friend stood up and said, You guys ought to be ashamed of yourselves. And you could hear a pin drop on the top of Mount Carmel. You could have heard a pin drop right then. Crickets after he said that. But then his gaze moved from the people to the prophets, and he uh, kind of threw down the gauntlet in verses 22 through 24. He called them out. He challenged them to a duel. He took off his gloves and slapped them across the face. However you want to describe it. This was one man challenging 450 other men to a contest, to a feat of strength. We might paraphrase verses 23 through 24 as, there's only one of me to your 450, so let's rumble. That's what he was saying. 
Now, there's a couple of ways we might interpret his contention there that he was the last of the prophets, that he was the only one. He might have actually felt that way. It's possible he thought that. I mean, later he would complain of the same thing, and he seemed to really believe he was out there by himself in serving the one true God. If you flip over to 1 Corinthians or 1 Kings chapter 19, you'll see a couple times, verse 10, verse 14, that he said, I alone am left. He was complaining to God. Of course, it wasn't true. It wasn't. In 1 Kings 18.4, it says, So it was, while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them 50 to a cave and had fed them with bread and water. There was more. And when he would complain of that in chapter 19, God would answer him and say, Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all those knees who have not bowed to Baal in every mouth that has not kissed him. God always has his remnant. We're never alone in serving God, no matter how, we might, how often we might feel that way. So if Elijah's... I am the only one left, was just him being thumbsucky. Well, he was just wrong. He was just wrong. But there's another possible interpretation, which I think might be just as likely. It might be that Elijah was not suggesting he was the only prophet left, but rather that in the context of that day, on that mountain, in that one contest, he was one man against 450. And maybe he was making his point to strengthen the whole argument that Jehovah was the one true God. Even a multitude of 450 false prophets and their false God were no match for a lone man with the one true God. Maybe he was saying, it's just little old me and you 450 guys. Seems like a perfectly fair match to me. Maybe. I don't know. Either of those might be true. But if that latter one is the thing, then it reminds us, doesn't it, that truth is not determined by a majority. Truth is not determined by a majority. It's a good thing for us Americans to remember. It's a good thing for you young people to remember. Truth is not determined by a majority. Just because the crowd says it is so does not make it so. Well, the challenge was simple enough. He would be given a bull. The 450 would be given a bull. Each would pray to their God or God with a little g in the case of Baal. And whichever answered the prayer by sending fire to devour the offering would be the winner. Now think about this. You have to think about this, what Elijah was doing here. He was giving them every possible advantage. He was throwing everything into their court. He was throwing down the gauntlet and challenging Baal literally in his own house. Remember, Mount Carmel was ground zero for the Baal worshippers. Baal was the storm god of rain and lightning. He gave them the choicest of locations. He gave them their choice of bulls. He even gave them the choice of activity, one that should have been squarely in Baal's wheelhouse, which was for the god of fire to answer by fire. It should have been a simple thing. So he threw down the gauntlet, and then verses 25 through 29, he gave Baal time to respond. Now, you guys know I'm weird, and you know that I find humor in a lot of different passages of Scripture, but if you do not find this particular passage funny, there's something wrong with your, your, your funny machine. There's something wrong with your sense of humor. This right here is funny. What's going on here? These guys prepared the bull of their choice. They laid it out on an altar that they made. They prayed to their God, and then they prayed again, and then they prayed again, and then they prayed again, and then they prayed again. They prayed all morning right up until noon. We have a hard time getting folks to come out on Wednesday night to pray for 15 or 20 minutes. These guys prayed all morning right up until noon to their false God. But then verse 26, there was no voice. 
No one answered. I said this was funny, but that, that's not funny right there. That's sad. So around noon, they started getting a bit exasperated. They started leaping about, dancing about the altar. Elijah, who had apparently been sitting very quietly somewhere off ways, quietly observing all this activity, around noon he could contain himself no longer, and he began to mock them, verse number 27. He suggested maybe they weren't praying loud enough. Maybe their God couldn't hear them. Don't you think the Lord our God can hear us? Even if we whisper, even if we don't open our mouths, even if it's just in our brain, in our heart. He hears us. Maybe maybe their God couldn't hear them. Maybe he was meditating and needed to be aroused from his meditation. Maybe he was busy. Now, if you guys have a study Bible, you may want to look up that word, busy, because you know what he was saying right there? He was saying, maybe he's in the little boy's room. Maybe he's relieving himself. That's literally what that means. Maybe he's relieving himself. I told you, this is hilarious. Cry louder, said Elijah, for maybe your God is in the bathroom. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's gone on a vacation, and you need to call him back from there. Can you just imagine Elijah just mocking them uh, about this? And that goading seems to get them even crazier. So here they are. They're praying. They're shouting. They're screaming. They're dancing about. And now they begin to cut themselves with knives and with spears. It was apparently a customary part of the worship of Baal. Thankfully, God doesn't ask that of us. This nonsense continued past noon until the time of the evening sacrifice. Now, that would have been about 3 o'clock is what most sources I, I, I consulted said. So for the better part of six hours, these 450 men have prayed. They have prayed louder. They have shouted in desperation. Finally, they've cut themselves bloody in trying to get their false god to answer them. Can you imagine that scene? Try to get it in your brain. 450 men. That's at least four times the number of people that are in this room. Praying aloud, shouting, screaming, dancing, gyrating, leaping about on the altar, cutting themselves till blood is gushing all over the place around their dead sacrifice. You know, one thing I can't help but notice about this, when I think about that and I see those guys doing that, you know what it tells me? It tells me that they must have believed what they were doing. They must have really believed that Baal would hear them. You know, it's entirely possible to sincerely believe a thing and be sincerely wrong. That's such an important truth we need to see. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Verse 29. It's one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Six hours of praying. Six hours of all that effort. No one answered. So verse number 30, it was Elijah's turn. Elijah repaired the old altar of the Lord and prepared his offering, verses 30 through 35. I want you to notice he didn't build something new. He restored what was already there. We oftentimes think we need to reinvent things, that we need to reinvent the wheel. I subscribe to a plethora of email things, email articles and things about church growth or church building or church planting or church administration. And it's amazing how many of them could be summed up with one phrase. We can't do it this way any longer. We need to have a new way. That's what almost all of them have to say. Every new generation comes along with its arrogant demand that if you want to reach us, you're going to have to change things. But, you know, here's the glorious and wonderful truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It works in every generation, just exactly as it is, without any change whatsoever. It has worked for 2,000 years, and it will work when Jesus comes back. We might need, from time to time, 
to freshen up our methods or to take advantage of new technologies. By the way, we have a new website. You should be looking at that and telling us what you think about it. But the day we try to change the message or the methods that are prescribed in Scripture is the day we're heading right down that slippery slope of Baal worship. And so Elijah didn't do that. Elijah repaired the old altar of the Lord and prepared his offering. I like the story of Elisha. Elisha was the prophet who some years in the future would replace Elijah. That might be another one of God's sense of humor things there to just do that to us. Elijah, and then there was Elisha. Elisha uh, was future. The Bible records a bunch of miracles that Elisha performed, and one of them I think is interesting and, and applies here. It, it occurred like this. Elisha and a group of men were chopping down trees one day. And one of the men uh, took a mighty swing with his axe, and the iron axe head went flying off and landed in a body of water and sank out of sight. And the guy was dismayed because he had borrowed it, and apparently it was an expensive thing, and he, uh, he couldn't pay for the loss. So he went to Elisha, and Elisha asked him where the thing had entered the water. And the man showed him where. Elisha then threw a stick in the water at that exact place, and the Bible says that axe head floated, iron axe head floated to the top of the water, and the man could retrieve it. You can read about that story if you want to in Second Kings chapter 6. Years ago, I listened to a sermon on that passage by my then-pastor Tom Malone, and I can still see him acting out the part of Elisha. He said, you know, pretending he was Elisha, he said, now where did you say you, you lost that axe head? And the man pointed right over there. And I can see Dr. Malone leaning out over the pulpit and say, where, exactly where? And he pointed right there, that exact spot, right there. And then Dr. Malone, acting out the part of Elisha, said, right there is exactly where you'll find it. Where you lost it is where you'll find it. Elisha, or Elijah, started calling the people back to Jehovah in the exact spot where they had fallen from it. He repaired the altar that they had let fall into disrepair. Or perhaps they'd actually torn it down. Later, he would again be in one of his thumbsucky moods and complaining to God, and he would say, the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They have torn down your altars. Maybe they'd done that. You know, we can do that. We can tear down our own altars. We can destroy our own churches. We can destroy our own homes. Solomon said, the wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her hands. Proverbs 14.1. Warren Wiersbe applied this, this truth to, to, to our homes uh, when he wrote, this is the first step toward blessing, repairing the personal altar of devotion, the family altar, the altar of sacrifice and communion with God. Elijah rebuilt the altar. And then he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold about 14 quarts of water. That word sia there is a measurement that was equivalent to about seven quarts. He laid out the wood on the altar, and then he cut the bull in pieces, and he laid the pieces on the altar. And all this was pretty normal routine, don't you think? Maybe not the trench, but the rest of it in, in, in preparing a burnt offering. But then he did something different. He told those standing around, he said, go get some water. Go get some water and get four water pots full of water and soak down this offering, this wood and the stones and everything. And then he said, do it again. And, and then he said, do it again, three different times. You know, there are always those who try to say the Bible has got mistakes in it. There are always those who try to find something that they can point at. We all know them and say, see, you can't be. Look at this silly thing right here. And this is one of them. Some folks have looked at this and said there's been three years of drought, three years of famine. There is no water. Nobody can find water, but miraculously, 
Here's four water pots of water times three. But the thing is, on top of Mount Carmel, there are springs. They are there to this day. There are springs that never go dry. They don't go dry in the, in the driest of weather. And they are right where he would have been. So the water covered everything, filled the trench around it to the brim. The water would prove conclusively this was not a trick. There's no secret fire underneath of this, of this offering that's going to burst into flame, which was apparently something the Baal worshippers did often. He says, uh, there's not going to be any trickery. Not this time. Come to verse 35. He prayed. He prayed a totally God-centered prayer. Read it and see if you don't agree. He was seeking the glory of God, nothing for himself. He was seeking that all would know who the one true God was and is. And I'm convicted by his prayer. I don't know if you are or not, but I'm convicted by it because what, what rock-solid faith he had. He truly believed. He demonstrated by his belief that God can do anything. He can fix anything that is broken. He can restore anything that is lost. He can heal any sickness. He can forgive any sin. He can do anything, anything, even answer from heaven by fire. To stand before everybody, as Elijah did there, and believe that is something I pray for myself. It's something I pray for all of you as well. I cannot tell you how many times I have had people talk to me, sit in my office or sit across a table from me, and tell me of some trouble they think impossible to fix. So many times I've heard those words, it's too late. There's no fixing this. And I think as I hear that, do you even know God? Do you even know God? It's not too late for Elijah's God. How can it be too late for yours? He will tell you, the Satan will tell you that you need to find your own way for God has abandoned you. He will tell you that you need to seek out the world and its false gods rather than the one true God. But we need to be as Elijah, believing to the uttermost that our God can and does. Well, the one true God answered by fire, verse number 38, no ordinary fire. It obliterated the sacrifice, obliterated the wood, the stones, the dust, and the water. Had you and I been looking on, we would have seen at one moment this monstrous pile of stones, a huge amount of wood. I mean, this was a bull. You know, bulls are rather large. There was enough wood on there to consume a bull. Fourteen quarts of water. That's what we would have seen. And a few seconds later, nothing. None of that would have been there. Stones were gone. Bull was gone. Wood was gone. Dust was gone. Water was gone. Everything obliterated. And those looking on could interpret it in no other way than this was a God thing. And they fell prostrate on their faces, shouting, the Lord, he is the God. He is the God. Well, so what does it mean to us? What does it mean to us? And we've already made a couple of applications. We've already mentioned the fact that one plus one equals success. Elijah didn't need a crowd. He was perfectly content to stand alone because he knew that he and God made a majority. And the same thing is true of us. We don't need a crowd, a majority. We don't even need a minority. All we need is God. If it's us and God, we've got all we need. You know, that application has been common to every story we've looked at. This is the 21st story that we've looked at from the Old Testament, and in every one we've seen the same thing. Noah found it to be true when he spent a 100 years building an ark, alone against all others who thought him nuts, but he survived the flood because he alone trusted in God. The children of Israel found it to be true when they stood with their back to the Red Sea, facing the oncoming Egyptian army. But all they needed was God, and he proved it to them by opening a path, giving them safety across it. David found it to be true when he faced Goliath and watched in awe as God grabbed a little stone and 
guided it into Goliath and defeated the giant. Daniel found it to be true when he chose to worship God alone, even when everybody else bowed to the king, and he was saved from the lion's den. We've also already made mention of another application, and that is this, that just because a crowd says it doesn't make it true. From the beginning of time, mankind has wanted to follow a crowd. As little children, we all use the same words. Every time mom would try to ask us why we did something with mom, everybody else is doing it. That's, that's the, we get that from, from childhood, and we carry it far into our adult years. And today I think it's worse than ever. You know, now with social media, we can build our own crowds. Have you noticed that? We can invent crowds. We can decide who we're going to listen to. And we can kick everybody else out. And we can build a massive following of people that thinks just like we do. And the minute somebody disagrees with us, we just kick them out. But you know what the fact is? That crowd is no more right than any other. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, Exodus chapter 23 says. Oh, that we would be more like Elijah and remember, just because a crowd says it doesn't make it right. There's another application that I think we might have already touched on, and a little bit at least, and that is the fact that our God can and does even the impossible. Our God loves to hear the word impossible, you know that? I think he laughs when he hears the word impossible, or at least he smiles about it, because it gives him a chance to prove the absurdity of it. I'm reminded of another story. It's a story in the New Testament. We talked about it when we looked through the Gospel of Mark. You remember Jesus was listening to a man describe the condition of his terribly ill and demon-possessed son. And the man said to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And I love Jesus' reply. It's wonderful. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Mark chapter 9 and verse 23. And if that's exactly what he said, just exactly that way, it would be wonderful in and of itself. But you know, he actually said something different there. The original language is fascinating. Jesus actually said something like, If you can, exclamation point, exclamation point, question mark, question mark, exclamation point. If you can, believe, exclamation point. To paraphrase it a bit further, he might have been saying something like this. What are you saying? Are you saying that I can't? Because all things are possible if you believe. Oh, that we might get hold of this. Believe it with all our might. Nothing is impossible with our God. If there is a theme that has run through every one of these 21 different stories from the Old Testament that we have preached here, it is that nothing is impossible with our God. Whatever it is, God can heal it. God can fix it. God can remake it. God can handle it. His arm is not shortened. And there is nothing, 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 nothing too hard. Our God. Well, there's one final application, and I'll close with this one. And I think it might be the main application of this story. And that is this there is only one God, and He does not share allegiance. There is only one God, and He does not share allegiance. Think back for just a minute on Elijah's question to the people on that mountain. Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. Now, certainly some of the people had no doubt abandoned the worship of God completely. And they had thrown in with the Baal worshipers completely. But I think others, maybe even many others, were tottering. They were on the fence. 
They still claimed to believe in Jehovah, but they were trying also to believe in Baal. They had one foot in each camp. Literally, they were limping on two crutches. That's what that particular phrase, faltering between two opinions, really is translated as. They were limping on two crutches. We do that. We do that more than we care to admit. Rather than wholeheartedly follow the Lord, we keep right on living our secular lives and we add Jesus. We add our faith in on top of that and we try to keep both of them going. We, we continue to worship our secular little idols while sprinkling a little bit of Jesus worship in alongside of it. But it doesn't work that way. God does not share allegiance. And we have to choose. We have to choose. You cannot serve Jesus and money at the same time. Jesus said that. You cannot serve Jesus and a career at the same time. You cannot serve Jesus and family at the same time. You cannot serve Jesus and any other idol you have in your life at the same time. He demands your all. And when you give him your all, he gives you his all. You can't have it both ways. Are you faltering between two opinions? I think that's the major application. Only one of them is right. And only one God can and will answer by fire. Everything else is false. Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this wonderful story. I pray it's helpful. I pray you'll speak to our hearts as we close with a song now and think about applying it. Lord, uh, I, I pray first of all, if there are those here today who don't know you as Savior, as we've mentioned several times, I pray if there are those who wonder what this Christianity thing is all about, I pray that as we sing, if they have questions, if they would just like to know more, if they, they would like to be sure that they're on their way to heaven someday, but they, they aren't, then I pray, Lord, that you would help them right now as we sing. Uh, help them to step out, Father, and let us show from the Bible how they can know for certain uh, that they're saved, that they're on their way to heaven. But, Lord, this is mostly a message for believers here today, I think. And so I pray if there are Christians here among us who need to think about some of these things, you'd help us to do it. Lord, are we faltering between two opinions? Are we limping on two crutches? Are we trying to live just a little bit in the world and a little bit in, in Christianity? Forgive us if that is the case. And help us, Father, to throw ourselves into the Jehovah camp. Help us as these people to fall prostrate before God and say, The Lord, He is the God. Lord, if... The Lord is God, then we should follow him. Help us to do that, we pray. If there are other needs, other concerns, other wants, other prayers that need to be prayed, I pray folks would know the altar is open and they make their way as we sing and uh, pray right here. And we give this time to you and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.